think so. Yeah, great. Okay, welcome to the Agents of Hope podcast. My name is Nizam Hussein. I'm an educational psychologist. And today I'm really honoured to have Joe Elliott to speak to us about dyslexia. Now, I'm going to let Joe introduce himself, but Joe is a professor at the University of Durham and also the principal of Collingwood College, was it, Joe? Right, that's right. Okay, brilliant. So, Joe, I don't know if you can spend a few minutes of just you kind of telling us what you do, how you've kind of kind of a snapshot of your journey towards becoming whatever you do now so the professorship yeah it's great well what i've been doing for most of last year is trying to uh, trying to manage covid in a community of young people um 500 young people in the college trying to manage that in ways which keep them safe but also seeing uh, fit within the regulations Um, and that's been quite a challenge at one point we had we divided our college into 42 households of about 15, 20 students each. And at one point, 40 of the 42 were in isolation. So that's been a large part of this year. Wow. But I've also been doing quite a bit of my research and writing as well. So at the moment, I'm on, the, on something called the Research Excellence Framework Panel, which is um, every seven or eight years, um, all research in Britain, all, every researcher, every academic in Britain has their uh, research evaluated and, and graded for a, a massive exercise, and then that comes out. Individuals don't know what their grades are, but uh, that comes out at the at the departmental level of each university, and this comes out next year, and it's a massive, massive undertaking. But there's about 24, 20 to 25 of us currently trying to do this. Um, so that's taking most of my summer out. Okay, and although you're... Yeah. Yeah, so maybe just say a little bit about background, So um, because I, I understand a lot, lot of your, your um, listeners are people who are, you know, sort of reasonably new to the EdSight world, I guess. So I, I trained in 1973. I can hardly believe it's 48 years ago, um, yeah, coming up to 48 years ago. But 1973, I trained as a teacher in 1977, and I was going to be a drama teacher. But what happened was I um, got some placements in a girls' secure unit, an adolescent secure unit, and this absolutely fascinated me. So I got a job there as a teacher, and I taught there for a few years. Um, and got really, really interested in the, in the work that the educational psychologist was doing at the time. Um, so I decided that that was a job that I wanted to pursue. So I, after I'd done two or three years, I, I thought I needed mainstream school experience. So I then taught in a comprehensive school in a really rough part of Sunderland for about five years. So I gained my experience. And a lot of the dyslexia that I write about is actually, you know, a lot of these ideas were coming in my head in the, in the mid to late 70s. And I'd now trained as an ed psych. And so I tr- finally, I, I got I, I got my um, had to do some more studying, get a psychology degree because I had an education degree before, and so on. In the end, I went to Newcastle, did my ed side training, 1984 to 86. And then, what, what, one of the things about um, when I was teaching in Sunderland, um, both in mainstream and specialist, we had lots of kids who struggled to learn to read. Some of them were called dyslexic, and some of them weren't called dyslexic. And I kind of assume that whoever's making these diagnostic decisions must be really good and know what they're doing. But what puzzled me is I couldn't see much difference between them. And I wasn't able to really work out what I should be doing differently for the dyslexic kids than the other poor readers. And, and at that time, I attributed this to pure ignorance on my part and thought, well, you know, you just don't know anything, do you, about this? You know, you really, 
yeah, you, you bluff your way through, in a sense, I suppose, is what I did for the first few years. Then I went to train as an Ed Psych 84. It was a two-year course in those days. And, and I thought, right, by the time I get to the end of that course, um, in two years' time, I will know a dyslexic child when I see one. I'll know how to diagnose them, uh, and I'll know how, what to do to help them. Um, I was really interested in my very first year, because the senior um, psychologist was chatting to him, and we went for lunch one day, and I said, well, when I was a trainee, I said, well, what, what, um, what have you been doing today then? And he said, oh, I've been seeing this child to see whether she's dyslexic or not. And I said, oh, you, you, what have you been doing? I've been loaded with tests and so on. And I said, well, what did you, what did you come to, you know, how did you conclude that? And he said, I came to the conclusion that, yes, she was dyslexic. I said, oh, yeah, so what, what was your recommendation? So I put her on a data pack program. Because our data pack is a, is a kind of behavioral objective program that was developed by psychologists and educational psychologists at Birmingham University in the early 80s. And it was very much kind of precision teaching, you know, break it down to very, very small steps and then do 10 minutes a day, et cetera, et cetera. And in a sense, a lot of ed psychs were using this program. So that's really interesting. I said, and I sort of leaned forward and said, uh, what would you have done if you decided that she wasn't dyslexic? And he kind of looked around the room a bit and then said, I'd still have put her on the data pack program. So what I wanted to do was just shout and say, well, what on earth did you worry about? Was she dyslexic or not then? If you're going to put in the program, why didn't you just put in the program in the first place? What difference did it make? At that point, that was 1985, I still kind of thought, you know, even when I qualified and I was working as a psychologist in, in the northeast of England, I still had this idea that there was all this expertise out there. There were other people, a bit more, maybe a bit more sophisticated than that person, who actually knew how to, you know, how to, how to identify dyslexia, how to run tests, how to work it out and to do programs. So in a sense, I still attributed to the fact that this senior side was probably about as ignorant as I was about how to do all this. So he joined a club of one at the time. We made a club of two of people. And, you know, and, and then during the late 80s, I was getting lots of referrals from people saying, um, can you have a look at this kid? I think he stroke, she's dyslexic. And I once got a four, one for four year olds saying, I think this child's got ADHD and dyslexic. And look, this came from the GP. Um, and all that time, I thought, uh, all that time I felt a bit of a fraud because I thought, I still don't know this. Uh, you know, it's just, you know, one of the problems about being an ed psych um, that I had anyway, is you deal with so many different complex problems that you that I well, I won't say you that I spend a lot of time thinking, you know, imposter syndrome. You know, I'm talking to people about autism. You know, I've talked to people about eating disorders. I'm eating, yeah, all these things, and I thought, I thought someone's going to find me out. And of course, within that was dyslexia in my mind. So this trotted on. I then went into teacher training in 1990, and I was training a diploma and a certificate in special educational needs for serving teachers as well as doing initial teacher training this took me into the 90s and i still felt really ignorant stupid and so on my way through the 1990s and in 1998 i wrote a book called children difficulties the guide to helping in fact the fourth edition comes out next month believe it or not you know some 23 years later i'm still doing this book and in that book i wrote a chapter on dyslexia i thought well this is you know let's bang a bit on that and this book, the problems, eating disorders, school phobia, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a chapter on dyslexia. And I, I wrote this chapter and I thought it was a bit, wasn't very good. I didn't really, I didn't feel very pleased with it. So in 2004, I was asked, um, they said, will you do a second edition? So I said, right, OK, I'll do a second edition. And when I read the second edition, I thought, I'm going to nail it now. Right. You know, I am now 
how old am I now? Yeah, I'm 49 years old. If I don't learn about dyslexia, if I don't nail it now, I'm never going to get there, you know. So when I, so what I did was I really, really read deeply into this issue and, and, and um, thought hard and looked at everything that was out there. And then in, in basically around 2004, it was almost like a kind of St. Paul on the road to Damascus conversion. It suddenly dawned on me that it what that the reason I couldn't recognize a dyslexic kid when I saw one or know what to do to help them that was different was because actually there wasn't it was there's nothing there in the literature there's nothing there in the science um and and so um that's what I wrote about in 2004 and then I've been trying to make a tv program with someone I was doing a lot of research and in, into motivation of adolescents in and primary age kids in Russia and United States and UK and I'd written a, a book about that as well and a TV producer wanted to make a TV program about it, so we pitched it to Channel 4. Channel 4 weren't interested. So we were talking, his wife was a speech therapist, and we were talking about this chapter in the book, and he said, um, well, this is really interesting. In the end, we pitched that to Channel 4, and Channel 4 kicked that into touch. They weren't interested either. And then the interesting is well, how these things work by chance. Channel 4 were then criticised by government for doing too much kind of 1830 club wet t-shirt competitions in Magaluf. But, and they said, you need to do a little bit more high profile, a bit more scientific. You need to go up market a bit. So they got nudged. So all of a sudden, Channel 4 looking around and they came back and suddenly thought, OK, we'll run this program. So we made this program that went out in 2005 called The Dyslexia Myth. Now, this program is, a, 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 I don't know if, if people are interested in dyslexia, see this program. You can download it. But you have to be really careful. If you Google it, it will send you to the wrong program because someone has managed to overlay another program on top of that one, like a cuckoo in a nest. And I'm, maybe I'm paranoid, but it's too much of a coincidence that someone would do that unless they wanted to, you know, to say a very different message. So you wanted to see the dyslexia myth. All you have to do is go to YouTube and put it in. It's Channel 4 Dispatches. And it was a fantastic program, mainly because the guy who made this program um, had an independent income, so he wasn't relying on the TV kind of budgets. So he flew all around the world and talked with all the people in the States, um, you know, you know, uh, some really amazing researchers. And, and in UK, uh, Maggie Snowling and Dorothy Bishop, you know, two, two great researchers. So he flew and they made this program. This program, when that went out, it caused mayhem. I, it was a, such a shock to me. Um, I came back and the Times Educational Supplement deputy editor phoned up and said, uh, Oh, it's, you know, it's going to go, it's going crazy tomorrow. It's coming out a piece, you know, it's going to go mad. Um, and then I got another phone call saying, get down to London now. Um, once you're on breakfast TV tomorrow, I kind of said, well, this is incredible. The reaction to it was amazing. And, and, and since 1984 to the present day, there are still periodic kind of bursts of explosions and so on where these things get a lot of attention and then it goes kind of quiet again. So it's, it's really quite interesting. But during from 2005 to 2014, I was getting loads and loads of kind of snotty emails, which turned into as the social media thing took off. Um, um, a little bit of trolling. Um, and, and, and people saying things like, well, it's just your opinion, isn't it? You've got, we've all got opinions. You know, yeah, this is yours. You, know, you think that and I think that. Where's your evidence? Where's the science? So. I kind of thought, you know what, they've got a point. So what I did then is I teamed up with a close friend called Elena Grigorenko, who was a professor at Yale Medical School, one of the world's leading geneticists and neuroscientists. 
And between us, we covered all the disciplines from sociology, psychology, education, genetics, neuroscience, social policy, and so on. And I said, I, let's really, really narrow this idea of dyslexia and let's get at it through all the disciplines, put them all together, because I wasn't aware that anyone had ever done that before. Put them all together. And then let's say what we think dyslexia is. So, so there we went. It took something like five years. The book came out in 2014. That was another st- storm. Uh, it from that. But that, this that is the, sorry, Joe. This is the book, the dyslexia debate that obviously came out in 2014. That's you said. right. 20, yeah, yeah. In 2014, the dyslexia debate. Um, and I was, you know, I went into that thing, and I'm going to say this is what dyslexia is. But actually, when we wrote the book, I've been writing to Keith Stanovich, who was one of the, the you know, the, the, the stars of the field, as it were. You know. And I felt very humble, kind of writing to this guy this, and this great man. And, and I said, you know, I, I really don't know what to do about this. And he said, well, he said, you know, dyslexia is, is just such a misunderstood, widely used term meaning nothing. He said, you know, if you don't kill it, it's just going to continue to rip things apart. So in the book, we actually recommended dropping altogether the term dyslexia and focusing upon um, the different problems kids have. And some kids' problems are are what the Americans call reading disability, which is basically a difficulty in decoding text, reading the scribbles on the page in front of you. Forget all the other stuff, right? There are, there's comorbidities between that problem and other things like clumsiness or whatever. But, and, and so what we recommend is if you're ed psych, what you need to do is look at the specific behaviours. So if the child is struggling to, to, to decode, focus on that. If it's a problem the child has difficulty understanding the meaning of text, the inference and so on. That's reading comprehension. That's a different thing. Focus on that as well. And, and if you've got a difficult problem with spelling, look at that or writing or whatever. Um, so let's look at the, that rather than have this amorphous term that's used by everyone to describe all sorts of different things. And of course, there's a, there's a whole constituency which now says, you know, it's a gift and dyslexic people are multi-talented and you know, and, and the spy, the spooks want to employ them. I mean, just nonsense um, stuff that's got no bearing in science. Um, and so basically, that's what we said. Of course, I'm a, I trained as an ed psych in the early 80s, and I was a product of the 1981 Education Act and also the Warnock Report, which came a couple of years before. And what that was doing, you know, it was, it was like really an important thing at that time, because prior to that, it was always about categories. So the 84 Education Act was maladjusted, educationally subnormal, you know, and all those terms. And what the 81 Act did was said is scrap all those kind of quasi-medical terms. What we need to do is actually look at the individual child's strengths and weaknesses and what their needs are and focus on those and do something about them. And, and one of the things I felt as an ed psych in the 80s, I still think now, is that sometimes what we do is almost displace an activity. We spend so much time diagnosing a condition and not spending enough time working along with parents and teachers and how to do something about it. It's almost like you go in and you get your diagnosis, then you do, I've done my work, you know, I'll leave it to you guys now. Um, and I still think that, that problem still exists now, like 35, 40 years later. So, so, so that's where we went with the dyslexia debate, and we argued this, but of course, it's really, really hard to shift this world, um, uh, the dyslexia world, because it meets the current ways of doing it meets so many needs. The needs of individuals who um, struggle to learn to read, some individuals struggle to learn to read and their families. The needs of tutors who want to be specialist dyslexic tutors rather than teachers of kids with reading disabilities. 
the, 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 the people who sell services, diagnostic services, the, the, the big, particularly in America, these big companies that now you know, talk a lot of neurobabble, lots of neuroscience, as if somehow you can wire people up to fMRI machines and somehow make a diagnosis. Um, there's big money involved in all of this, um, huge money. In the, there's a piece in The Guardian um, that, uh, that was written about all this debate. Um, it's really great. It's a great article by a lady called Sirin Kell. S-I-R-I-N is her first name. K-L, K-A-L-E is her second name. And if you put Sirin Kale Dyslexia Guardian, Guardian in, up here pops his article and read this. It's about 5,000 words. It actually shows you about big business and how that works as well. So that's a really, really brilliantly, brilliant piece of journalism. Um, so, um, and, and so, so basically since from about 2014 onwards, we've seen a huge debate. More And Solity, a number of amazing psychologists, educational psychologists, to think about the fundamental problem of the whole dyslexia industry, as I call it, which is the fact that this caters for a very, very small proportion of children who often have parents who can advocate for them, who might have the money to get the services um, or get private assessments or get provision in special kind of expensive schools. A small number of people get the label and get this resource, and then huge numbers of children, all the sort of kids I taught in the inner cities, none of them had a cat in hell chance of ever getting this diagnosis. Um, and so what this does is it privileges those people who get that label over huge numbers of us. Imagine we said, I don't know, 15, 20% of children have reading difficulties. And what proportion of people get a dyslexia diagnosis? Well, it's certainly not the people who are the, have the greatest reading Side who works in that kind of world. Um, they will tell you that when they go to tribunals, when there's kids going to the tribunals about dyslexia, what they will tell you is that, that usually those children's problems are not that dissimilar to hundreds of others in those local authorities. So, so, so the problem is, why, why would you do that? Of course, if by doing that, you kind of lance the ball a bit. You reduce political pressure on government doing about it because the people who are very vociferous and powerful get all those sorts of services. And the kids who don't have any political power, their families and so on, they carry on. They're, they're the kind of the, the, the kids who are, don't get that. So I suppose my question to you would be, Joe, so what, why is the use of the term dyslexia flawed and what are the challenges of identifying children who can be categorised as dyslexic despite their diagnosis offering some hope and agency yes. to a minority of people? Right. Well, let's talk first about, about the science, about the dyslexia uh, diagnosis, and then we'll talk about hope, because that's an important thread in this one. So the question is, before you can diagnose dyslexia, you have to be clear what it is you're talking about, what the construct is. And the biggest problem in this whole debate is that different people hold different understandings of dyslexia, but everyone then treats it as if it's the same thing they're talking about. So I've written a paper called It's Time to Be Scientific About Dyslexia. This paper is free to all. Durham University, my employers, they paid a fee to the publisher, which means that the public, that this paper is seen as open access. That is, anyone can read it. Just put that into Google and you should be able to read it. And in this paper, I talk about four different understandings of dyslexia. So I'll go through those if I may. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. The, 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 the understanding that most, what I call highly, you know, the, the high-powered research world, 
Um, the understanding they have of dyslexia is pretty much that they conceive of that as a synonym for poor reading, reading disability. So when you see a paper like the genetics of dyslexia or genetics of neuroscience or the genetics, I'm oh, sorry, the, the, the you know, um, dyslexia and, and, and cognitive psychology or cognitive processing or anything like that, where you see these terms, we look at who they use as their participants in the studies. They're basically kids who, or kids or adults, who've done a reading test and score low on it, maybe maybe below sort of 15th centile, something like that, sometimes 20th centile and below. So basically, for all the scientific work, when they use the term dyslexia, they're just talking about kids who just are poor on, on the reading. But, but, but and So they conceive of reading as a normal distribution curve, and then at the far end, there's your dyslexics. So they would do some assessments, and then you have a pre predetermined cut-off point, and anyone below that cut-off point would be eligible to... That would, that would be the way. That's the way they would for, for yeah. research studies when, when they've got those. And, and, you know, various other people have argued that that's the way we should use dyslexia. And Maggie Snowden thinks many times has talked about you know, arbitrary cut-off points and where do you make that cut-off. But simply... That point. Well, of course, there's all sorts of statistical problems with single cutoff points, um, but because of error in the measurement and fluctuation from day to day and so on. But but that's one way you can see it. So in this article, I said this is the, the main way that researchers talk about it. Now I wrote a published a paper which is cited in there with Portugal, um, and, and what we did is we looked at all the studies, something like 800 studies using the term dyslexia over the last oh God knows how many years, 20 years or whatever. And, and what we found that nearly all of them had done it like that. It was almost always that that was the way it was to simply cut off point. You score a certain point on a reading test, bang, you're in. So that's the first kind of dyslexia. The only thing is, though, that the whole dyslexia industry doesn't work like that. Because the dyslexia industry is sort of based on the notion that here we've got um, a child who's 10 years old. Reading at six-year level, so before we start, we know this kiddie's got a really difficult problem in reading, decoding, a massive problem. Well, we know they've got nothing wrong with their eyes and ears, you know, the kind of hearing vision and so on. But so in all love respects that you would, you know, the standard sort of child um, in that way. Um, and here's a child who's 10 reading to six. Um, maybe this child's dyslexic. So what I should do is send this kiddie off for an assessment to see whether dyslexia or not. So in other words, it's not the first kind of dyslexia where you know that by that term, they'd be dyslexic simply on the fact they're four years behind on a reading age equivalent. But the idea here is that you might be massively behind in reading, but you might not be dyslexic. You might just be an ordinary poor reader or whatever. What, what Keith Stanovich termed the garden variety poor reader. That though, the problem with that is, well, what would be the kind of tests and things you would do to make a distinction between dyslexic, non-dyslexic with a struggling reader? No point giving them a reading test. You know before you start where they're going to be on that. So the assumption is that somehow you have to look inside the cognitive processes to identify who's dyslexic or not. Of course, years ago when I was training, but even now they're still doing it. But when I was training, there was a strong belief that dyslexic children were high IQ for readers, and, and non-dyslexic uh, were low IQ for readers. So simply, where you have a difference between the reading ability and IQ, if you had a big difference between them, they're dyslexic, and where it's matching, they're not. But research done in the 1990s made it abundantly clear that you couldn't use IQ to differentiate 
on that basis. The, 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 these problems got nothing to do with IQ. I mean, you can always cut people. You can always cut anything by categories. You could have male and females and say all, all females are dyslexic and all males aren't, or tall people, short people, or redheads, dark hair. Yeah, anything you like, northerners, southerners. It's got to be meaningful. It has to. And, and, and the problem with IQ was it wasn't meaningful. It didn't differentiate between. It told you nothing about what to do in terms of your intervention. So whether you're high IQ or low, low IQ, the intervention was the same. And it told you nothing about the likely prognosis of how well the person would respond to intervention at all. But of course, this didn't go down well with many people. It didn't go down with the psychometricians who, who basically make an industry out of using IQ and so on, particularly in America, these, these kind of tests. And then they developed a whole bunch of other tests called strengths and weaknesses tests. And again, same thing, there's no, nothing there. Um, so it doesn't go down with a psychometrician. It didn't go down well with the families of the kids. Because if you, if you say that dyslexics are poor readers who are super bright, then you can understand why that label is very, very important to, to a family. Because one of the problems with, this, with reading difficulty is that people often get treated as if they're stupid or idiots or whatever, you know. And, and so, so totally wrongly. But that's because people mixing IQ or intelligence, measured intelligence, with reading ability. There is no link. But the public think there is a link. So where you think the dyslexic term means I'm super bright, you can see why people would be, would, the last thing they would want is that to disappear. The trouble was the science killed it. Science showed it. Even the neuroscience, which doesn't do a lot for us in this respect, but the neuroscience showed that the areas of a brain that sort of where there, where there are sometimes some difficulty um, don't seem to have anything to do. You put high IQs in or low IQs into these functional magnetic resonance imaging models. It doesn't make any difference to the kinds of brains, uh, brain functioning that you see. So, so that was a lot. So then, of course, people got a problem. What the hell are we going to do if we can't use IQ? The next step was then to look at subtests of IQ to try and get them together. So we had what was the old acid test in, in the Wexley, the WISC, you know, arithmetic, coding, information and digit spam. Um, and there was another version for the BAS. Um, and what, um, basically, after a period of time, it became quite clear that that didn't do any more than the, the whole IQ test. So basically, IQs went out the window. And as I put in the paper that I mentioned earlier, um, basically, they've come up with other kinds of tests. Um, but that's now been shown to be similarly problematic to the point that people advocating those tests have now sort of basically stepped back from that. So, so what else can you do? Well, then you kind of look at what are the underlying cognitive processes? Well, clearly, um, the yeah, 90s showed us that it wasn't that reading disability, I call it, or dyslexia, as some might want to call it. But these kinds of problems don't have a lot to do with vision. You know, the jumping around the page and upside down and so on. That was knocked on the head by Frank Velutino, and amongst others, who was at Albany University in New York State. Um, so gradually over time, people began to realise these problems are fundamentally linguistic, although there are some visual elements. Some people do have some visual components, which is um, but I think a bit different. Um, but um, so basically, it was aware of that. And then people began to search for what were these processes? Well, what, again, research in the 80s, 90s showed the importance of phonological awareness, the ability to hear these sounds in words. And I'm sure everyone's listening to this when I'm talking about. And that seems to have, a, uh, have an impact on, on a lot of children, although there are some children who have poor phonological awareness who are great readers 
And there's some people who are really poor readers who have great phonological awareness. Yeah, there's not a straightforward thing like this. And the idea that, you know, somehow you say this kid's got phonological awareness problem and a reading problem, they're dyslexic. None of that stacks up. It really doesn't stack up at all. Um, and then there's a hunt for all sorts of other processes. Working memory, which I did a lot of work with, with um, Tracy Alloway and, um, uh, um, and others um, uh, with some of the Cambridge team as well. Um, uh, Susan Gathercole. Um, we looked at working memory quite a lot and found a lot of kids who were struggling with their learning have problems with working memory. But again, when you track back, what you find is lots of poor readers don't have a working memory problem, and lots of people with working memories are good readers. Uh, all sorts of other processes, reading speed, you know, all this stuff. What the research, uh, if I just bring us forward to the present day, what the research is now showing is that the hunt for a specific or two or three specific processes that somehow you can use to, to, to identify that this is the reason why kids can't read is false. What we're talking about is, is a probabilistic uh, way of looking at the world. In other words, there's multiple factors which increase the likelihood this child's going to stop. Genetically, multiple factors. And then you've got some factors which, in a sense, help you to become got the right kind of education instruction, you've got the right kind of family, you've got the right kind of approach to all of this and so on. And so these are multiple, multifactorial kind of understandings. So the idea you go off to someone for an hour and sit in a clinic somewhere and they bang out a couple of tests and then turn around and say, you're dyslexic, you're not, it doesn't stack up even in scientific terms. But the other problem is um, I've spent 30 years saying to dyslexia specialists, Give me your criteria. How do you, how, what judgment? You've got this 10-year-old reading six-year level. You say they're dyslexic. What criteria do you use? Let me give you a classic example of the answer. So a couple of, two or three years ago, I got this guy sent me an email telling me I'm an absolute disgrace, a disgrace to my profession, a disgrace to psychology, a disgrace to the world. You know, you know, you, lots of children suffer and struggle and so on, and you're just taking it away from them. You know, you're just selfish and... You really want to bloody, bloody, blah. This man made one error. Well, he made lots of errors, but he one, made one fatal error. And that is in the email, he put his, he put his mobile phone number. And, and of course, you know, I, do, I never get upset by these things. They, you know, it washes off me, quite frankly. But, um, but he, made, he left his phone. So I didn't, what I always do when I do that, I pick the phone up and he picks the phone up. I say, hi, this is Julian from Dom. Thank you for your email. Really interested to read it. And of course, immediately the person's on the back foot. Oh, oh, my goodness. Oh, well, so good of you to phone back. Yeah, yeah, sorry. I was a bit, yeah, I wrote a little bit, yeah, hasty there. Maybe, and all this kind of stuff. So I said, well, you know, give me the background of, of this, really. And he said, well, my wife, um, my wife is, you know, a super, super diagnostician and, you know, marvellous kind of person. She can tell you all about dyslexia and so on. You know, and you, you, you kind of like, you've been a bit critical of some of these diagnostic procedures, you know. But if you talk to my wife, you'd know immediately that, you know, that you're totally wrong. So I said, well, that's very interesting. Thank you for that. Um, would you be so kind as to tell me what would be the criteria that she would employ to make a judgment of a 10 year old reading? And six, this is why we give the same example, because then it's always standard. Then. What criteria would she give me to make a judgment that this 10 year old reading like a six year old, I, we know they've got a reading problem before they've started. What criteria would she use? So there's a long, long silence, you know. And it kind of denied. I said, no, let me reframe the question. When she makes that judgment, there's got to be certain things 
that she, that will, she will look for to help her do that, if you're going to use these kind of medical models. She said, well, she did clinical expertise, he said. I said, what do you mean? He said, she's clinical, she's uh, clinical expertise. She knows one when she sees one. And, and that's the kind of answer you get all the time. And of course, that is unacceptable. It is wholly unacceptable in, in, in this field. You can't say, I know one when I see one. You've got to be able to articulate how you would differentiate a dyslexic from a non-dyslexic. And then you'd have, not only would you have to articulate it, but then you'd have to articulate it in a way you can justify it. I've gone to a British Dyslexia Association dinner. By mistake, I got my part that I'd been invited to the to the top table at this dinner with all the brass there, and I'd gone as someone else's guest. And I don't think they were very happy about it, but all the same. And we sat down, and a person was talking to me about she'd been, you know, a trustee of this for 30 years or whatever. So I asked her the same question. I said, it was really interesting. Well, this is a question I always ask people. Can I ask you if you've been in this you know, business a long time? And I asked her the 10-year-old reading a six-year level. Um, I said, yeah, what would you do? And she said, well, what would I? I said, well, how would you do this? She said, I'd start off with an intelligence test. And I said, but on your website, on your website, you state categorically that, that dyslexia, as you understand the term, I guess, dyslexia occurs across the full IQ range. So if dyslexia occurs across the full IQ range, how could you possibly use an IQ test to, to help you make a judgment that a child's dyslexic or not? At which point, and I'm not joking, at which point she said to me, you know, it's been a really, really tough day, a really hard day. Do you think we might just, just talk about the weather or something and leave it to something else and not talk about this tonight? And we'll catch up tomorrow and have the conversation. So the next day, she was hiding <laughs> under the table somewhere when she saw me coming. Because there was no, she had no idea how to answer that question. Not the faintest idea. And that is the, that is the challenge. Yeah, I would say to all the people who, who are listening to this podcast, just say, what, yeah, what are the criteria? And can you justify them? And if you start talking about front of your awareness, that doesn't stack up. If you say working memory, that stacks up even less. And if you talk about speed of information processing or clumsiness or anxiety or depression or whatever you want to use, none of them stack up to make that clear differentiation. These are all features of, of, uh, of, uh, that you may find more likely to happen with kids who are poor readers. But by no means would you use that as a diagnostic tool. So this is the second kind. So the first thing, as I said, the scientists talk about dyslexia. Basically, they use this as a synonym. And that's fine. Simon Gibbs and I wrote about it. Simon Gibbs, who was a trained ed scientist at Newcastle University. Simon and I wrote this paper 2008 said, if you want to use dyslexia to describe poor readers, that's fine, as long as we all know what we're talking about when we do this. Um, the second kind is the idea that, um, that, that, that somehow it's a kind of hidden condition. So in American legislation now, some of the, some of the kind of major policymakers, you know, they almost talk about this kind of, as if it's hidden. So there's this wonderful diagnostician who saw this child who was struggling, could identify dyslexia. And, you know, for the first time in my life, you know, this wonderful person discovered I had this. Uh, yeah. Well, everyone can see you're struggling to learn to read. You know, I mean, it's, you know, you, you've known all your life you're struggling to learn to read. So what exactly has this diagnostician actually found out? Um, so there is a, this, this kind of idea. And the third way you could conceive of dyslexia, which I have some sympathy for, is it, is, it describes those children and adults who just don't seem 
progress in reading, despite being given the very best forms of intervention. And and I have some sympathy for that because I think we could use that term. That Simon and I actually said that in our, in our 2008 paper. We could say that yeah, the kind of kiddie, there are some who, who whatever we do with the best approaches we have at the moment in, a, in our in repertoire, there's some children who just don't make the kind of progress we need them to make or would like them to make. And I said we could save the term dyslexia to describe that population. And what that would mean is that those people would have to be given assistive technologies to help them to function because they're not going to be good. In the same way that, you, you know, in the same way that we sometimes teach kids, you know, Lacaton or sign language or you know, use electric wheelchairs or whatever, you, you know, hearing aids and so on, Braille. And sometimes you actually have to bring technology into it because people need that to help them. So I've said, you know, where people have had wonderful treatment they're still not getting anywhere we need to invest in them and give them all the best assistive technologies we can that costs money so we could use could use the term dyslexia to open that door um, but then you'd have to do it at the end of years and years of intervention not with a, not with a four-year-old you'd be doing it um, i think that's quite good but a lot because that immediately takes out the whole dyslexia diagnosis industry in a, at a stroke pretty much um, the fourth kind of dyslexia is this is this kind of neurodiverse thing, which is about, you know, that dyslexia is a much bigger, bigger thing. It's a kind of much more encompassing condition of which reading disabilities and so on is one small part. And in some cases, they might not even have a reading problem at all. They're still dyslexic. Uh, and then what those people do is they throw the kitchen sink at, the, at people, you know, multiple tests on test on test until they find a few common things that they're not doing very well on. Um, sometimes they're not they're average on this and they're really strong on the other and they use that as an excuse. Along within that world of this neurodiversity kind of diagnosis, the idea that it's a gift, that you that you know, where you lose out in some bits you're gonna have strengths elsewhere, and there's no no evidence for that whatsoever. The thing about the gift is, um, you know when you you've come across people in warfare. And, and, and people in warfare maybe have lost a limb or something like that. And so they've come back from the warfare, they've lost a limb. And so they become, they focus, well, what can I do? Well, I can be, I don't know, I can play, I can play tennis in a wheelchair or I can really work on my, on art or, I, you know, work as a lawyer. In other words, you channel your energies into another area because, of, so because you can't, because you say you've got a problem with your leg, so therefore you might well end up playing a a sport or an art or something which involves your arms and you get very you focus on that and you get very good at it now obviously if you're if you are someone who struggles with the written word and and you're, and you're driven and motivated and, and those of us uh, those, those, those people who are perhaps highly talented intellectually as well they're going to what they're going to do is going to focus all their energies perhaps into areas like business or the creative industries and so on Where their difficulties are not going to hinder them, they're not going to hamper them. So you know, you're going to go into an area where you've really got strengths. Um, and, you know, if I'm in the university, um, we have a lot of people who have kind of you know, ASD on, on the spectrum. A lot of a high proportion of people like that go into computer science, you know, some of the physics and so on, because in a sense they've got strength in, in those areas and develop those areas. So the idea that the idea that the, 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 um, 
that dyslexia is, is balanced in some way with these gifts isn't the case. But what we do have are some people who have reading problems who have really driven forward and created, you know, huge skills in other areas. That doesn't mean they say they had great, they weren't born. Garnish them later. So that's the fourth kind. There's no evidence for any of that stuff. The paper I mentioned to you, trying to be scientific about this lecture, goes to each of those four components. So people interested, just to go back to that paper and say, it doesn't cost you anything, you can better download it for nothing. You'll find all those things there. But now we come to hope, right? If, if I may. Um, so, so one of the biggest arguments for the dyslexia diagnosis, and one of the biggest criticisms of, of the things I'm saying, is people say, well, when I was diagnosed dyslexic, I felt so much better. You know, people, I thought, I'm not stupid. I'm not thick. I'm not lazy. Um, or, or parents would say, you know, people stop thinking my son, my daughter was stupid and so on. And so, so this is, and, and some of the leading researchers in this field, actually in the UK, I've actually used this to, to argue for the keeping the term dyslexia. The idea that when you get this label, what it does is it protects the individual with the label from false attributions about intelligence, about motivation, you know, and, and the kind of the, the, those kind of pejorative elements of, of a person's self and behaviour. And I can absolutely understand that. But, you know, if I had a child who was struggling to learn to read, you know, I might well want to go along that line because I would see this as helpful to my kid. But here's the problem. Supposing as a society, what Ed Sykes have to do is balance that focus on the individual with, with the needs of broader society. And, and it's a, it's, these things are, are zero sum games. And it's a bit like when, you know, when, when you're doing assessments in local authority, you know, you would love to pour a resource into this child that you've seen here. Massive amounts because these amounts, the more you give them, the more they're going to benefit. But you have to bear it up against the fact that there are finite resources in the local authority. And, and in that sense, you have to bear that up, bear, weigh those up. So here's the problem. If we say that here's the child who's poor reading, um, struggling reader. If we say that the, if the child is diagnosed dyslexic, that that means they're not lazy, um, that it means they're not stupid. What does that actually say about all the struggling readers with similar kinds of profiles who don't have this label? So are they the stupid ones? Are they the lazy ones? Because in a sense, that's what it's implying. Of course, you know, of course, the idea that you don't read because you're lazy, you're bone idle, is the, you know one of the craziest things I've ever come across. I, yeah, you know, I, 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 it, it's kind of, I, I don't like the term lazy at all. Anyway, don't tell me I've only ever used the word lazy in relation to my own two children. I told them they're bone idle sometimes. <laughs> That's what parents can do. But we never use that term to describe an, another person, your other children. But but basically, sometimes struggling readers lose motivation. And they lose motivation because they, they've tried really hard and don't seem to be getting anywhere. And for some of those struggling readers, not only do they get this sense of learned helplessness, they also get that sense um, that, that um, other people see them trying hard and failing. And then you get this, this, what, you know, this real massive kind of almost shameful effect. And, and, and then something called self-worth protection kicks in. If, you don't, if, you're, if people listening to this ever hear the term self-worth protection, Read stuff that Martin Covington has written about self-worth protection. Again, it's one of the best books I ever read um, as an ed site to understand why some children clown around, mess about in classrooms and deliberately undermine their chances of doing well. 
um, when they're trying to protect their sense of self and protect themselves from from trying hard and failing. So many people would rather fail um, than to try hard and be likely to fail because trying hard and failing is, is shameful for a lot of people, whereas clowning around and failing is not, even though they might feel a sense of guilt. So, so the problem with the, using the term dyslexia to, to, to bat away um, assertions that this person is lazy and stupid or whatever uh, is highly problematic in my term because, because of what it does in terms of the understanding about all these other kids. So in my mind, what we should be saying is making sure that everyone understands that the, these kinds of abilities, the ability to decode, to read text, it's got nothing to do with intelligence for anyone. So there will be super bright ones who struggle to learn to read, and there'll be many in the middle, and there'll be some who with, with, with intellectual challenges of one kind or another. But you can't make any kind of distinction there on the basis of their reading. Keep the two things separate. You know, you, it's like, I don't know, reading ability uh, and the ability to, to be paint pictures or play football or whatever. You know, they're separate domains, so let's not mix those things up. And let's not ever use the term lazy to describe a child who is basically trying to protect themselves by actually, or, or they've just given up because of the, because of the, they don't believe there's no, the sense of self-efficacy is, is gone. So that's why, although I understand the level of the parent or the individual, why this label is powerful and gives hope, maybe, hope that people aren't going to laugh at them or think badly of them. Um, but unfortunately, what that does is it increases the problems for all the others. And what we should be doing is working systemically, not, not uh, through that kind of individual medical way of thought. And I suppose it takes, sometimes there's a danger that in that way, it takes the attention away from good quality teaching, evidence-based practice, and it diverts the attention towards the individual. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, some people still believe um, that there's some kind of dyslexia specialist teaching. You've got dyslexia-friendly schools. So you look, you, when you talk to people who do the dyslexia-friendly schools, they're doing wonderful stuff, a lot of great stuff. But they'll all tell you, they'll say, well, it's not just, you know, this applies to any kid who's struggling to learn to read. It's got nothing to do with dyslexia. Now, you might call it dyslexia-friendly schools because the word dyslexia might be quite good for marketing purposes or getting people to notice it. Um, so you can understand why that might be attractive in that label. But these are schools which is saying we need to be aware of providing the right kind of environment for children who have struggled with literacy difficulties. So, so yeah, absolutely. There is no, there is no training. In America, they've got very excited about Orton Gillingham, and there's a number of states which are almost mandating Orton Gillingham, which is a very structured finance approach, mandating its use with so-called dyslexic populations. And there's a very interesting paper written a couple of months ago which did a meta-analysis of all the research into this area and found that actually that approach was not stronger than lots of other approaches to teaching reading. The, the amount of gains from that were not that different to, uh, to a lot of other. So there's a kind of rhetoric out, in the, particularly in America, there's big company, big money being made, um, sort of hawking this kind of stuff around without any scientific basis for what they're doing. Not to say that the bits of, there's certain bits of the Orton Gillingham which are good, the structured funding stuff is obviously helpful, um, but the other problem with those kinds of approaches is sometimes that's all people do and they don't situate that kind of structured phonics approach within a much broader understanding of the teaching and reading, which is absolutely essential, of course. So that, I think that kind of brings me to the final bit is about the role of the EP, the role of the educational psychologist in supporting schools to 
to offer that more, uh, from what I see as more authentic hope for all learners and all readers. And yeah. how, what role educational psychologists can have in that? What to well, really offer I mean, that authentic hope and that offer that authentic support really for the schools? What I would say is the first thing is if you want to know and answer that question, read the in the Guardian because this talks about some wonderful work being done in Cambridge um, and some wonderful work in Staffordshire and Warwickshire. Um, in Staffordshire and Warwickshire, it all got very political because uh, some of you, some of your listeners might know that the um, someone in the House of Lords condemned this kind of work, um, and the Guardian article deals with that in fine detail, condemned it in ways which were totally inappropriate. Um, and because what was what they were doing in these authorities, Cambridge, um, Staffordshire, Warwickshire, and Jonathan Somerty is doing it in sort of Essex and now down that way. It's basically creating systems of saying, let's have systems where we've got teachers working in a way that they can identify all children who struggle to learn to read from a very early age and where we will monitor them and we in place great structures, great processes to ensure that all kids get done and get monitored and, and we tailor the kind of resource and help that the children receive on the basis of how well they're responding to the, to the help that they get. What's called response to intervention in America, RTI, but also called multi-tier systems of support, MTSS, which, is, which is, seems to be taken over in America. In many ways, those terms are synonymous. In some states, they mean slightly different things. So you can get, do your head in trying to work out that. But, but this was very threatening because it killed the idea about identifying individual dyslexics and testing them and then sending them off for special treatment. Now, this was a system-wide thing. And, and what I would say educational psychologists is that you have to think about the, the, the system the local authority of you in a kind of if you're in some kind of academy trust have you got a stru structure in the system which which is enabling the teachers who are the people doing the instruction enabling those teachers to provide the very best instruction the very best systems and to spot kids and to follow kids and see how well they're doing in a sense, I think that's the better role of psychology than taking them into a school medical room somewhere and hitting them you know, with a whisk or something like that, writing a report and sending it back. So, so uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely in awe of my colleagues. Um, the colleagues at Staffordshire and Warwickshire, um, they, 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 you know, they got a lot of stick after the, after the, after the House of Lords thing. Um, and, and, Joe Ward, Sarah Crawford, and then the people at Cambridge, they've done some wonderful work as well. Interestingly, some authorities say we don't really want to use the term dyslexia at all. Uh, and then others are like more like Cambridge are saying, well, you can call it dyslexia if you like, but we're talking about all kids who've got a problem with reading. If you want to call it dyslexia, that's fine, but this is what we're doing. Um, and we're doing it for all these kids. We're not differentiating between them. So there's slight subtle differences there. But I think in a sense of Ned site. It's seeing that system-wide approach and helping put those structures in place that's really important. In 1984, when I started, we had great hopes about, about with education, great hopes about identifying children's special needs, dealing with them, working with parents, teachers. And then what we saw was this massive pendulum coming back to this medical model, which is all about diagnosing this. As he got ADHD, as she got ASD, you know, she got the you know, dyspraxia, dyscalculia, dyslexia, oppositional defiant disorder, or obsessive compulsive disorder, you know, conduct disorder, yeah, all those things. And you've basically gone back to this very medical model. 
but um, yeah, but that's not the way forward for red psychs, in my opinion. Red psychs are about setting great systems of, of learning and instruction to meet those children and to be, work along and help those teachers do that. So that would be my, my hope for that. And I believe we're trying to raise hope. We're not raising hope for a few children who go along for dyslexia diagnosis and assessment. We're going to raise hope just for all those kids who are in schools across the country who struggle to learn. If you can't read and you're going through school, what hell that must be. So we really need to do something about that. No, absolutely. Yeah, yeah no, 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 absolutely. I think it's so liberating to work with teachers, working alongside them, using the tools that they use on a day-to-day basis to support those who are struggling with reading within systems which are where you've had input with installing response to intervention or assessment through teaching yeah. processes anyway. And it can feel really liberating. And you're right, it's uh, it's giving, it's spreading the hope amongst the whole population and not just identifying a few using methods which, you know, which are inherently suspect anyway. Absolutely. And one other thing I'll say is I got a sense, you know, before COVID I was getting invited to one or two local authority ed psych services and talking with them. And I got a kind of sense that in the last five years, ed psych services have gone very much, a lot of people have focused on mental health, mental well-being. Um, Rightly so, they're doing that. But one of the things that's happened is there's so much attention has gone in that direction that quite a few of the psychologists I spoke with seem to feel that they'd got to the position where they, they no longer had the specialist knowledge to help teachers with struggling readers. And so, again, what I'd be thinking is, if, you know, from the point of view of a psychological service, is thinking about have we got the right balance in this service between those people who are re- really up to, up to speed in terms of the best ways of helping struggling readers and they might work across local authorities to help set up these systems. And there's others whose expertise and perhaps interests have really gone much more towards the kind of the mental health, psychological well-being kind of things. And within that service, you want some kind of balance. And I felt from one or two services I've been to, colleagues was almost saying to me as though the balance had got completely tilted in such a way that all the work was being done by you know, reading support teachers and, and others within the local authority to the point the EdSites no longer had a role in in reading, which for me, you know, that reading, literacy, you know, learning abilities of that kind, um, must be, in my mind, was always a core part of being an ed site. No, 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 I, I, and I would, I would, I would, I would kind of recognise that viewpoint, actually. And for me, it's more about when people say, how do reading difficulties develop? I kind of shift that and go, actually find out how do, how do people develop reading in the first place? And actually, once we get to that bit, the, the latter bit, then then the difficulties are more apparent and obvious using everyday methods. And you're right, I think yeah. definitely need to shift our focus into knowledge building around how does reading spelling develop in the first place. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, what, what, what's the evidence for different kinds of interventions? You know, sort of question like, is it, you know, is it worth doing one to one or is it one to two? You know, what's the evidence say on that? You know, what about small group teaching? You know, what about um, whole language approaches, which of course Aren't, aren't powerful with this population at all. But, you know, but so what you were looking for in your ed psych service, the people who really read this literature know all the work as it's coming through. Someone who is actually monitoring the literature that's coming through on a regular basis. So when, you know, when I, when I was training at Newcastle, um, I, I had a placement at Newcastle University, uh, sorry, Newcastle Psychological Service. Um, 
uh, with Phil Stringham, actually, who still works down at UC, UCL. He was my supervisor. But, you know, what they had there was kind of like you had half a day for a project. Um, and so one of the things that you could do then is you had to half a day when you could really you know, go to the journals or literature or go to specialists or whatever and keep up to date on all the new work that's coming out there. And I thought that was a really good model, because if we're just running around all the time doing our daily job, how do we get how do we know what's going on out there? How are we at the forefront of knowledge? We aren't any longer. So so I think that would be an issue for, for, for psychologists, I would think, respectfully. Um, say that and also, and also. Yeah, and also around the evidence base. You know, I remember in one of your days, I think you had for local authorities around their approaches to meet the needs of those who are struggling readers. And the Warwickshire and Staffordshire thing was happening. I sat next to Greg Brooks for breakfast, actually, the next day. Yeah. And he's telling me, although he's on the fifth edition for what works, a lot of those evidences are pre, pre-test, intervention, post-test. And actually, yeah. he said, we actually need to gather better evidence about what works as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, some very good work being done in in the states, of course, because you know some amazing research teams. Sharon Bourne at the University of Texas is doing a lot of great stuff. So you, you know, there's there is a lot of work being done out of there. And Jack Fletcher is another person that's well worth checking out as well. He's written a wonderful book recently. Um, um, and uh, I mean, there's a lot of great stuff out there. There's not a lot of research being done in UK that um, I'm aware of in this kind of in terms of um, in terms of the interventions that, that youngsters are reading problems. Uh, Jonathan Solity's doing a fair old bit, but, but, um, and I think you're interviewing him separately, aren't you? So, um, yeah, hopefully, yeah. Yeah, so, so I'll let him talk on that. <laughs> well, I am, um, I think that's a, that's been a wonderful, I think you've, you've spoken really well about the, your topic of interest. What are, what are plans for you then going forward in, uh, what, 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 yeah. what your current interest that you're working on? I know you uh, mentioned this in the introduction, but what? Yeah, well, um, I get my old age pensions in, in another week's time or so, <laughs> so I cannot, be, I cannot believe I'm 66, but you know, it can seem I'm still, I'm still, <laughs> when I'm trying to get out of bed in the morning. But um, I'm working on, um, I'm, I'm doing the, this research excellence framework, all this assessment stuff. But next year, the, the university is giving me nine months off to, to do the second edition of the dyslexia debate. Okay, so well. I've already started writing that. I've, and the book I've done on children in difficulty, um, the fourth edition, that's just about done. That's just about coming out shortly in the summer. So, that's, so that, when that one's finished, in the sense I've, I've got the dyslexia debate going next, and that will come out probably about 2023, something like that. It's massive literature, huge in trying to keep up to date and following that through. Um, so those, those are the main research things. But the other thing is, that, you know, running in the college. I'm trying. We've got a big campaign. It's our golden anniversary um, in 2022-23. And one of my jobs is to is to is to get our alumni to support us um, to to make the college an amazing place. And and they're very very they've been very good to us. But it, but it, that involves um, a, a lot of work actually. So I'll be busy doing that as well. <laughs> well, I'm. But I'm, the other thing I should, the other thing I should, one last thing I should say. Um, I'm, yeah, I've been more than happy, before, pre-COVID, I was more than happy to come and talk to psychological services um, about some of these issues. And, and it's really important, I, you know, I'm not here to make any money out of it, so I don't charge. I've never charged a speaker's fee or anything to do these things. I mean, with the sabbatical and writing the book, it might be a bit tighter. But I've always come, all I've ever had is my, you know, my travel expenses and so on. But I'm more than happy, I would love to come and talk to, particularly if there's groups of local authorities doing it, you know, so there's a if you travel, yeah, hundreds of miles, you'd rather hope there's more than three people there, you know. 
Um, yeah, so I hope. But I'd be so happy. That, yeah, so that's it. Uh, I'd be that's happy to come down and talk with. Yeah, I'd be happy to come and talk with. As I say, I, yeah, I deliberately um, make it clear to everyone I don't charge because because yeah, one of the things I don't want anyone doing is thinking somehow you're trying to make money out of putting forward a position because there's a lot of that out there and I, yeah, I don't like that. Well, I hope when this when this podcast is released and people are listening to this that. The offer is still there, and uh, people can get in touch with you. You're, you know, you're, you're accepting any offers to kind of come down, and like you said, with beyond the expenses, you're happy to do that for free. So yeah, uh, absolutely. Hopefully, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Well, Joe, well, I would really like to thank you again for agreeing to be part of this. I think the conversation is stimulating as always. I've heard you speak a number of times, and each time I, 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 it just I pick up something new from whatever you've said. So, and you're always delivering such a Charismatic kind of energetic oh. level as well. So that's. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not built for the Zoom age. You know, I'm, uh, to be honest, <laughs> I'm absolutely not built for Zoom. It's, I mean, uh, I've struggled to be honest with these screen things, and I'm getting too old, I think, for this. Yeah. So I'm just going to stop recording, and then we can have a little catch up. So. Right.